Well, 150 years ago last month, October the 8th, 1871, a raging three-day fire destroyed 3.3 square miles of Chicago. At the time, the population was about 325,000, and about a third of those residents were homeless because of the fire. Mrs. O'Leary, her feisty cow, and a toppled oil lamp often take the rap for the rampant flames that cost $4.7 billion of damage in today's dollars. Remarkably, did you know only 300 people died in that fire? Which is remarkable because that very night, uh, north of Chicago in Peshtigo, Wisconsin, there was a forest fire that engulfed that town, killed 1,500. The Chicago Tribune posted an editorial after the fire with these headlines. Cheer up! One historian said, almost immediately, many Chicagoans came to see the epic destruction of their city as an unexpectedly positive event. A stage in its irresistible upward development rather than a dispiriting setback. You see, with so many buildings destroyed, city planners got a clean slate to rebuild from scratch. And the result was a new Chicago that looked very, very different from the original version. Stronger building materials, more thoughtful design. Chicago was nicknamed Second City because it was built twice. Oh, and by the way, Mrs. O'Leary wasn't milking her cow that night. She was sound asleep that night with her husband when their barn went up in flames. You know, when you think about it, life is a series of starting over. It's a series of events where, you know, everything is taken to the ground. We graduate from high school. We leave the familiar world of achievements and failures and friends and enemies We enter college, we start a trade school, we uh, join the armed forces, we start all over. We have children, we start all over. We retire, we start over. Sometimes that starting over is planned and predictable, but other times, like a fire or a tornado, these moments come without warning and they leave us with just memories. Memories. And you know there are times when the church of Jesus Christ is taken to the ground as well. You know that, don't you? In the book of Acts, the church in Jerusalem was enjoying community and growth and fellowship and teaching. And then Acts chapter 8 says a great persecution broke out. And what happened? The believers were scattered. They had to start over. When the Roman Empire fell, monks hid in monasteries and copied the scriptures. And we have the Bible because of their dedication. Chinese Christians are cut off from the rest of the world for decades. But after decades, decades of isolation, we learn that not only had our brothers and sisters in Christ in China survived, they thrived. 
Oh, and did you know that in Iran, the 500 known believers in 1979 have now grown to roughly 1 million. And now with COVID, it's happened again. This virus has devastated churches all across the country. And as you can see, attendance has yet to fully recover. About half of us are back. Some of us really want to be here and can't because of appropriate health concerns. One family in our church told us this week that they wanted to make sure we knew. You know, we're with you, we just can't be with you. And, and frankly, others who didn't want to be here in the first place or they were here for convenience or other consumeristic reasons, they now have a hall pass because of COVID. And I don't have to convince you of the many professions that have suffered some degree of burnout. Right? I'm looking at educators here. I'm looking at uh, health professionals here, medicine, mental health, and yeah, ministry. As with the Chicago fire, the fall of Rome, our Christian brothers and sisters in China and Iran and Afghanistan, we should recognize that COVID is giving us a chance to start over. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, <laughs> many pastors said over the years, Lord, just give me a handful of committed believers and we'll change the world. <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> COVID, by the grace of God, has corralled us into a handful of believers. To God be the glory. And by, and by the way, while about half of us are back, God's generosity through you is just blossoming. I mean, our average weekly giving uh, uh, in 2021 has been right at $30,000 a week. And that's, that is something to be praised. Something to be praised. God be praised. And you can see uh, this past week we've been busy with uh, Samaritan's Purse and Operation Christmas Child. Uh, also, uh, 40 families are going to be receiving Thanksgiving uh, turkeys and meals this week. Um, uh, I mean, God is working. God is working. And, and, you know, we can either long for the nostalgia of yesterday or open ourselves to the future God has prepared. We can either view COVID as a dispiriting setback or open ourselves to the irresistible upward call of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. COVID is taking the American church to the ground. Praise God. Resurrections aren't just for Easter morning. Now, I mention all of this to introduce our scripture today. Meet me in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Nehemiah can be found, if you'll just take your Bibles and you'll just open right about in the middle, you'll get to the book of Psalms and then turn left. And you'll find the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 9. In Nehemiah chapter 9, Israel's leading biblical scholar, Ezra, offers a prayer to God uh, on behalf of the nation. Ezra is a pastor theologian. 
And he and the Levites, who are Israel's priests, have gathered God's people in the rebuilt city of Jerusalem for a solemn service of Scripture reading and prayer. And Nehemiah chapter 9 contains the account of this Scripture reading and specifically Ezra's prayer. We're going to look at the entire chapter this morning. I want to read verses 1 through 5 of chapter 9 and then verses 32 to 37. Now on the 24th day of this month, that would be the 24th day of the, uh, the Jewish month of Elul, Elul, which would be, in our calendar, October 31st, 455 B.C. October 31st, 455 B.C. The people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bani, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani. And they cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabneah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in, in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies 
and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. This is God's work. So having rebuilt the city in Nehemiah chapters 1 through 6, Israel seeks to rebuild their lives in Nehemiah chapters 7 through 13. To rebuild a city, you need bricks and stone and lumber, mortar, other building materials. To rebuild a community, you need prayer. You need scripture. And you need to be worshiping in community. And I tell you, rebuilding on the inside matters just as much as rebuilding on the outside. Israel commits themselves in chapter 9 to a distinctive lifestyle that is separate from idol-worshiping nations that surround them. That's what's behind this phrase, they separated themselves. It's as if they said, Lord, we're... We're tired of business as usual. We commit ourselves to living as your distinctive people. We're not going to be mistaken for the people in our culture. And so for six hours, the word of God is read. And for six hours, they confess and they worship to the Lord. It was a scripture-saturated day of God-centered worship. You see how to rebuild a life? You see, God will rebuild your life when you read his word, pray his word, live his word, and come together with others in worship. That's what's happening in these verses, and that's what will happen in our lives here. Now, Nehemiah chapter 9 is the longest prayer in the Bible. And it's a prayer about the Bible. And um, I'd like to call it Ezra's Expository Prayer. Yeah, Ezra's Expository Prayer. Expository Prayer is a prayer that prays the Bible. That's what Expository Prayer is. A prayer whose substance is Scripture. Church family, is there anybody here who, who just, you get to a point where you just don't know what to pray anymore? You're just, you just don't know what to pray anymore. If you ever get to the point in your life where you don't know what to pray anymore, pray the Bible. Just pray the Bible. Pray the very Word of God. Take these verses, verse by verse, and turn those verses into a prayer. A prayer to God. And here's why. Without the Bible, we're flying blind. It's that simple. Without the Bible, we become woefully unaware of ourselves and our world and our condition in the world. Without the Bible, we won't know if we're healthy or not. Without the Bible, we'll, we're left with what the culture thinks. And what the culture thinks is what led Israel into exile. And now that they're back, the culture wants Israel to think the very same things that led to exile in the first place. That's how relentless the culture is. These verses invite us to live a biblically wise life. 
a biblically wise life. You see, the scriptures are a map of where we are, a compass telling us where we need to be, and a pair of glasses to help us see the way there. And this chapter helps us see what happens. This chapter helps us see what happens when people rediscover their Bible. And as we look through these verses, the verses of Ezra's expository prayer, I think that we can hear three major themes. There's the theme of God's great name. There's the theme of our great need. And there's the theme of His great plan. Expository prayer. God's name, our need, His plan. Name, need, and plan. That's where we're going this morning. Let's first consider how Ezra's prayer reveals God's great name. So, so this prayer is a summary of Old Testament history. If, if you've ever wanted to read the Old Testament, Pastor, give me the Old Testament in one chapter. Nehemiah 9. Just take Nehemiah 9. Uh, it's a summary of Old Testament history. For example, look at verses 6, 7, and 8. Those verses contain content in the book of Genesis. The God who creates and the God who calls. The God who called Abram, blessed father, to be Abraham, the father of many nations. Verses 6 through 8, that's Genesis. And then look in verses 9 through 21. Those verses contain content from the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy. Exodus through Deuteronomy. And then look at verses 22 to 25. Uh, those verses contain content from the Old Testament book of Joshua. Jo Joshua. And then, let's keep going, verses 26 to 29 contain content from the book of Judges. Judges. You see the word saviors in verse 27? That's a reference to the judges, the, the, it, the saviors. That's a small case S. The saviors who saved them from the land of their enemies. So we're talking about Samson and Gideon and Deborah. And then verse 30 is a one-verse summary of the books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. You see what we're doing? We're just taking a sweeping history of the Old Testament in this expository prayer. And in verse 32, Ezra says, now, now. So he comes to the present. Ezra's sweeping history prays about God's dealings with his people. Creation, Abraham, Exodus, wilderness, judges, prophets, exile, and return. It's a history of judgment and mercy. It's a history of God's revealing of himself. Did you notice? Go back to verses 6 through 15. God is the subject of every sentence in those verses. Ezra cried out in prayer saying, you are the Lord. L literally, verse 7 says, you are he, Yahweh of God. You, you, you made heaven the heaven of heavens. You preserve. You chose Abram. You brought him out of Ur. You found his heart faithful. 
You have kept your promise. You saw. You made. You divided the sea. You cast. You led. You came down. You made known. You gave them bread. You, you, you. Are you getting the picture of how those in the Old Testament interpreted the Old Testament? Ezra acknowledges the ultimate reality behind the text, the one and only God. The God who is. The God who has revealed himself. The God who has, here it is, acted to make a name for himself. Verse 10. And you made a name for yourself. You know why God created? To make a name for himself. You know why God elected Abram? To make a name for himself. Do you know why God rescued Israel from Egypt? Why God divided the sea? Why God cast Egypt's armies into the depths? Why God led them day and night to Sinai? Why? You made a name for yourself. And then verse 10 says, you see that phrase? As it is to this day. To this day. Uh, uh, so a thousand years after Moses. It was a thousand years between Moses and Nehemiah. A thousand years after Moses, Ezra exalts the God whose rescuing activities have made a name for himself. Now, why would God do that? Why, why would he act to make a name for himself to this day? Why? I know why. So that we will learn to say, God, I trust you with this. I trust you. I trust you with my life. I trust you with my family. I trust you with my spouse. I trust you with my children. God, I trust you with the hard things. God, I trust you with the easy things. God, I trust you. Church family, can you say that no matter what happens to your life, that the God who has made a name for himself has done so so that we will trust him now, tomorrow, and every day? Can you say that? Right here, right now, somebody is stressing over Thanksgiving logistics. Right in here, right now, someone thinks Thanksgiving is an episode of Chopped. <laughs> How am I going to bake everything with only one oven? When are we going to eat? Because the daughter usually naps when I want to have a Thanksgiving dinner. Why, why, what are we even going to do for entertainment when you can't put out a jigsaw puzzle with a two-year-old? What, what are we going to do? <laughs> Breathe. Ezra's expository prayer proclaims the God who makes a name for himself. A, a name that people can recognize and rely on and rest in for thousands of years. You don't have to host a gourmet feast to prove your worth. If having the perfect Thanksgiving or Christmas experience is the source of your awe, you're never going to be at peace. Because where you pursue your awe will predetermine the peace in your heart. You can have it all 
and miss the awe. And this chapter, this, this section here, this you, God, this section is an invitation for us to situate our lives, our health, our jobs, our family, our future in the awe of the one God who alone satisfies the heart. God is inviting us to value him as a precious, personal, cherished treasure, and that is the rebuilding he's calling us to. God has made a name for himself so that we can say, God, I trust you with this. Expository prayer exalts God's great name. Amen? Oh, but there's more. In these verses, the God who reveals His name is the God who unveils our great need. His great name, our great need. So this entire chapter, and specifically Ezra's prayer, cycles back and forth between two key phrases, all right? And I already told us about one of the key phrases, but you, but you. The other phrase is, but they. But you, but they. Verse 15, but you told them to possess the land. Verse 16, but they acted presumptuously. They made a golden calf. Verse 17, but you are a God ready to forgive. Verse 26, but they were disobedient and rebelled against you. You see it? But you, but they. So, so Israel's history was a back and forth volley uh, between but you, but they. God's graciousness was met by Israel's thanklessness. In fact, verse 28 says, Many times, many times, you delivered them according to your mercies. Oh, Mrs. O'Leary might be innocent, but Israel wasn't. And by, by the time we get to the present, in verse 32, we hear yet another cry for mercy. So, so this prayer... In Nehemiah chapter 9, only has one request. There's only one request. See? And we get to that request in verse 32. Let not all this hardship seem little to you. That's the request. That's the request. And then we go to verse 33. Verse 33 summarizes... Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 33 says, Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Hmm. I think that's the summary of, verse, of chapter 9. So, verse 33, here it is. Verse 33 summarizes Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9 summarizes the Old Testament. That means that verse 33 summarizes the Old Testament. So, so the Old Testament is a story of God's faithfulness to Israel's wickedness. And, and yet by the time we get to verse 33, Ezra changes the pronoun. 
he no longer says they, does he? He says we. We. And, and he prays what seems baffling to 21st century individualistic Americans. He identifies with and confesses ancestral sins, corporate sins. Verse 34, our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Would it not be something if our leaders in our nation could go to the National Cathedral and pray this kind of prayer? National repentance, national confessions for our national sins. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. And Ezra says, that's why we're here today. That's why, that's why we're slaves today. We're, we're back in the land of promise, but we're slaves. We are. And that's why this chapter closes in verse 37. That's why we are in great distress great distress so so this chapter is for people who are in great distress anybody here in great distress today and let me be even more specific i mean some of us are in great distress because it is a sinful broken fallen world and we didn't ask for this distress but we live in a broken world of distress and it has splashed itself on us Others of us have sinned their way into great distress. And that's this. That's this. That's, that's Israel. For, for the last thousand years, Israel has cried out and God has rescued. And this cycle has repeated itself over and over. And now they're asking for mercy again. That's verse 32. Let not all this hardship seem little to you. Now call me a cynic. Is there any reason to believe that things are going to be different? How many times does God take someone back before you begin to question God's character? How many murderers and adulterers and sinners does God let into heaven before you wonder whether God takes his holiness seriously? I mean, if God does not punish sin, what's holiness about? And on the other hand, if he does punish sin, then where does that leave me? Where does that leave Israel? Or any of us. Ding. <laughs> Ding. That's the, that is the, 
That's the gospel notification ding. <laughs> that ding says, Pastor, it's time to talk about Jesus. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's do that. Let's do that. Th this, is, this is totally unscripted. Uh, so anyway, well, sort of, not maybe my script, God's script, in any way. Let's get to Jesus here. So there's God's name. There's our need. I mean, you can see what I'm talking about, though, right? How does God, how does God do this? I mean, he is holy, is he not? I mean, we, we, we want justice in our world, don't we? Of course we do. But yet, if God is consistent in his justice, it's like what the psalmist says. Lord, if you keep a record of sin, who can stand? And the answer is, no one can stand. Now, I need some help here, God. Well, God's help is on the way. It's called Advent. It's called Advent. So, so the expository prayer that reveals God's name which is the expository prayer that unveils our need, is the expository prayer that awaits God's great plan of Advent. Yes, Nehemiah chapter 9 only sees its conclusion 455 years later. Let not all this hardship seem too little to you. It's not. Advent is no little thing to the Lord. For does not the great apostle Paul say in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, But God, there it is, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, and we were dead, but God. Paul says, and we were lost in trespasses, but God made us alive in Christ. Paul says, we were corpses, but God raised us up. We once stood in rebellion, but God seated us with him. We were once paupers, but God showed the immeasurable riches of his grace. And he poured out his Holy Spirit upon us to empower us to live the lives that he wants us to live. Distinctive lives so that we don't have to huddle within the walls of a city. Rather, we can go out into every tongue and tribe and nation and language with the gospel of Jesus Christ our king yes nehemiah 9 cries out for the day when god himself will conquer our sinful failures he cries out for resolution between god's white hot holiness and god's tender mercy because the only way that god can pass over so many blasphemous failures in israel and in us the only way he can do this and still contain his righteousness is to take his judicial wrath out on his own son. And Nehemiah chapter 9 is one of the clearest testimonies of failure, mercy, failure, mercy, failure, mercy. How is God righteous in all of this? And the answer to that question is God's great plan to crucify his son. The death of the most valuable person in the universe is how God says this much is how I hate your sin and this much is how I honor my glory. 
Mercy is never cheap. And it never conflicts with the holiness of God. My righteousness stands forever in mercy for those who trust my son. And Nehemiah chapter 9 looks to the day when God will send Jesus who enters history as a human, as a baby. Not so that we can enjoy interesting stories about him, but so that this biblical story, this true biblical story of reality might lead to awe in the living God. Jesus came into the world to complete the story of Israel. He came on a rescue mission when he died and rose and ascended and took his throne and sent his spirit. And he did this to make a name for himself. And that name has lasted 2,000 years and more and it's just getting started. His great name, his great name has set in motion a great plan to meet our great need. For when the Son was sent to build us up, He was sent to be torn down. Instead of plucking us up like we deserved, God put His own Son on the cross. Instead of breaking down our pitiful defenses and excuses, He sent His Son to be broken in our place. Instead of destroying us, he crushed his own son under his wrath. Instead of overthrowing our rebellion and tossing us into hell, he tossed his own son to the wolves of evil where he was crucified. God the Son was plucked up, broken down, overthrown, and destroyed so that he could make us new. Through Jesus, God rebuilds, replants, and redeems his people for the sake of his great name. The name is the revelation of who he is and what he's like so that we can know him and trust him and enjoy him. And that name is given to you so that you can come to him in your great distress, even when you send yourself into that distress. That name is coming to you right now in this chapter through his word to give you mercy and grace. So beloved, welcome him, trust him, enjoy him. That's why we're here. You wanna see the glory of God's name? Well, glory has a name. His name is Jesus.